Welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast. We're discussing critical care and its pharmacotherapy in a fun and entertaining manner. Each episode, we summarize the available evidence, discuss controversial issues, and provide practical take-home points with a subject matter expert. I'm your host, Nick Peters. Wherever you are and whoever you are listening, thank you. Now, just a quick update on the Pharmacy to Read book club. So you, the listeners, have spoken. And as our first book, we'll be reading 12 Rules for Life, An Antidote to Chaos by Jordan Peterson. So this book provides 12 principles for how to live a meaningful life. And I think this is something that you know, most of us, if not all of us, are striving for on a daily basis. Um, so I think from there, some of you may be wondering what comes next. Well, there are three things in the immediate that if you want to participate that you're going to have to do. So the first, what we would highly encourage is to join our pharmacy to read group on goodreads.com. And next, get the book. (laughs) Um, Seems simple enough, right? So whether you rent it from your local library, visit your favorite independent bookstore, listen to it via audiobook, that doesn't really matter. And then once you have the book, just get started on reading it. Um, there will be kind of updates in the in the weeks to follow. But right now, that's that's all the homework if you're looking to join the, the Pharmacy to Read book club. Now today, we are in for a treat, ladies and gentlemen, because we are joined by an icon in both pharmacy and critical care. We have Jimmy Hatton Kolpik discussing post-intensive care syndrome. Now, Jimmy is a professor at the University of Kentucky College of Pharmacy in Lexington, Kentucky. She's a fellow of the Society of Critical Care Medicine and has practiced as a critical care specialist and clinical researcher in neurotrauma throughout her career. She's a graduate of the University of Kentucky College of Pharmacy and completed a two-year residency and research fellowship at UK Healthcare in Lexington. She started her career at the St. Louis, St. Louis College of Pharmacy before returning to join the faculty at UK as a critical care faculty member in 1989. Jimmy became involved in acute rehabilitation clinics for patients with traumatic brain injury during a sabbatical year, and from that experience became interested in ICU recovery. Jimmy, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Nick. I'm really honored to be invited to participate. Now, one of the first episodes for this podcast featured Alex Flannery, another University of Kentucky Wildcat, and he talked about being a UK Wildcat fan. So I, I have to put you on the spot here and ask if you're also a, a diehard Wildcat fan. Yes, I'm afraid that's very true. I actually had the opportunity to go to the Belk Bowl Uh, just recently and watch our football team and I'm an avid both football and basketball and all types of sports here at Kentucky uh, Wildcat fan. Now you are the definition of a true fan because for those who don't know I mean when when you think of University of Kentucky instantly basketball comes to mind but rooting you know being an avid um, fan of the football team as well that's that's definitely true fandom. You know, is this something that's required when when they're interviewing or being hired? Like you're submitting your your application. It says, please send in CV, letter of intent, and then proof of your University of Kentucky fandom. Or does that just kind of happen naturally? Actually, what we do is once right before we extend a letter of offer, we do uh, require a blood test and you must 
bleed blue, and it's a Kentucky color of blue. We're very funny about our blue colors here. There are certain basketball teams with blues that if you have that color, it's a little harder to be employed here, but we won't get specific on that. And you're absolutely not allowed to bleed red. And I think that's instant. Uh, yeah, offer red is a definite right? out. <laughs> <laughs> Although we're pretty happy with uh, bringing a little of that red blood through our football and basketball program here recently this year. So that's all I'll say about that. <laughs> now, as you prepared for this talk, I, I have to say I've, I learned many things, but but one of them is that Lexington is the horse capital of the world. And it makes sense, though, because you know one of my favorite things to do is visit the Keeneland racetrack. So I have to imagine this is probably something you enjoy. So when would you say is the best time to try and visit um, and get to experience that in person, you know, based on your experience? Well, Keeneland is really a treasure that we have here at Lexington, and it's a beautiful space. Even if you don't enjoy uh, racing or gambling, the, the particular area itself is just magnificent. And it's open for sales and other things at different times of the year. But to come uh, in the spring, it opens in April, and it runs in April from the first uh Thursday through the last Friday and building up to the Derby events. And then uh, in the fall, it is open for racing in October from the first Friday till the last uh, Friday in October. So either time of year, it's just beautiful. Uh, it is closed on Monday and Tuesdays. Uh, but otherwise, it is a really special, special thing. You get to see the horses, the thoroughbreds. They've uh, built out areas where you can go watch them through the paddock before they go onto the track. And, and of course, now our sports teams, as well as when you arrive at the Lexington Airport to get your luggage, the theme is the call to the post. So I think Keeneland has become heavily integrated into the Lexington uh, culture here. So you'll experience it somehow when you're here. Yeah, high recommendation if you're if you're in or around Lexington um, to definitely see it because it's it's fantastic. It's a sight. You're exactly right. Now, some listening may not know this, but Jimmy is actually the president elect for the American College of Clinical Pharmacy (ACCP) for 2019-2020. Now, is this something that you imagined you could achieve as you started your career? Honestly, uh, that would be a no. <laughs> I have truly been uh, overwhelmed that this opportunity has been uh, given to me by the members of ACCP. But that said, I do recognize that as a profession of clinical pharmacist, we're so lucky to have an organization where we have mentors who have been part of clinical pharmacy for years and built an organization where when you attend meetings, you have an opportunity to speak with those individuals. They're invested in us. They mentor us. They help set up programs to develop us. And I really feel like that because of that, I've been given the chance to actually move through a system that gave me a leadership opportunity that I could never have expected to come in my career. But I'm so very grateful. So what advice would you give the listeners who may think like oh, being president of a, a national pharmacy organization? That's crazy. That that could never be me. You know, what maybe advice would you give them, especially because, you know, it sounds like you were also blown away at having this opportunity. Sure. 
That's a really good question. I, I think every one of us is on an individual journey through our careers as to the directions uh, we end up going. Um, but that said, I think that becoming involved in the organization and reaching out and being a part of the activities uh, through the PRNs as well as your memberships on the committees, those it is truly a member driven organization. I think I've grown to understand that even more as I've uh, recently become more engaged with the uh, Senior Leadership Board of Regents activities and getting to work with Brian Ersted and Suzanne Nesbitt and the whole team, Mike Maddox. They just have this continuum of efforts to involve members. They truly are committed to hearing from the membership. So I think if you are thinking about becoming more engaged in leaders, leadership positions in this organization, we are all willing and anxious to meet with you and help you develop whatever skill sets and whatever types of exposures you need to help us continue the momentum and keeping this organization alive and vital and moving forward in response to what's needed by our patients and our other healthcare colleagues. So just stay involved, come to meetings, present your research, present your expertise in clinical presentations and acquire skill sets um, through programs that are offered, the FIT, the Merit Program, the Pharmacogenomic Certificates, other things, because the more members you meet, the more you learn about the needs throughout the entire uh, clinical pharmacy profession. And that's what ACCP allows. It's small enough for us to really rub shoulders together and learn from each other. I could not have said it better my, myself. I, I echo all of those thoughts. ACCP, you know, I joined as a as a resident, it's given back in, in ways I can't imagine. And, and FYI, they're not a sponsor for any of this. We are all, oh, this yeah. is just our true, our true feeling. So, um, absolutely. now kind of shifting gears here to the, um, topic at hand. So what made you interested in post-intensive care syndrome or, you know, what we're probably going to refer to it throughout the podcast as is PICS. So was it a specific patient or experience or maybe was it something else? It's interesting. You mentioned the sabbatical year where I had an opportunity to work with um, an acute rehab setting. My entire research and career has been in acute traumatic brain injury and spent my entire time trying to save the brain in early interventions, uh, giving drugs within four hours of injury, eight hours of injury, all these different uh, paradigms that we explored in the 90s to do this, uh, to try to save the brain, save a life. During the acute rehab facility experience and clinic activities, I realized that there's a lot that happens to people once they leave our emergency room and we save their life. That said, it was at a Society of Critical Care Medicine meeting when I heard the presentation that was given, I believe, by Joanna Stallings, sort of talking through the issues as they relate to post-intensive care syndrome and the findings of the brain ICU recovery studies that had been published and the ongoing interest in brain injury coming from patients who are not ever admitted to a neuro ICU. They're actually in a medical ICU with no prior brain injury. Well, that fascinated me. I could not understand how that could be. And so when I got back from that meeting, I had the chance to talk with our ICU recovery team that was just in the 
early stages of getting started under the direction of Dr. Ashley Montgomery Yates. And since that time, I've been working with her and Joanna Stallings and the Thrive Pharmacy Group to learn more and become involved in this clinic. Uh, And it's been a fascinating experience to move from neurotrauma acute critical care into a more outpatient long-term follow-up setting and see the impact of the care we give in the unit on long-term life decisions, life changes, and the families. And thinking about patients once they leave the ICU um, is a, I think, compared to just on the whole of critical care, a relatively new finding. So how long has, has PICS been a focus kind of in the world of critical care? It's interesting. Um, actually, this has been talked about for a while in Europe before it really gained a lot of traction in the U.S., uh, but I think that what it's my understanding and from what I know about it, uh, the Society of Critical Care Medicine became increasingly involved in a conference that was convened in September of 2010 where they had had a lot of feedback from patients and care providers saying they were having problems after the ICU. So they brought together a series of stakeholders from rehabilitation, outpatient, and community care. And they wanted to bring this group together to address long-term consequences, define them, help us understand what they look like, see if we can get a common terminology and nomenclature so that we can start defining and seeking improvements to help in the continuum of care for these people. So I would say in the U.S. it probably really came into focus somewhere around that window of time once that stakeholder meeting was called. But it's been in Europe, it's been recognized in Europe a little bit longer than that. Now, did something happen that thrust Hicks kind of into this spotlight or did it just kind of happen naturally? I think that increasingly patients were presenting to their primary care physicians and, and other healthcare providers with symptoms that were not recognized prior to the acute event that had happened to them. They were having long-term uh, sleep problems, long-term weakness. They were having difficulties in staying employed or doing the jobs they had had before. And so between the patients and the providers recognizing this was going on at such an increasing rate, uh, this, this launched the focus on we need to recognize this as a public health issue and find out how large it is and understand what we need to do to try to improve the outcome following this. As I say, I think we've known about it a long time as it relates to an acute traumatic brain injury or stroke. I don't think people recognize that those who have never actually had that type of event could still be suffering and having cognitive changes that line up with a three and six month Glasgow outcome scale score similar to what you would see in a patient who actually did have a brain injury. I think that was pretty surprising to people. So that thrust it into the spotlight as the number of people surviving are just so much higher. How is PICS defined? Do we have a formal definition? Uh, I would say that PICS is defined as a change 
or worsening in uh, one of three domains. It can be all three domains or just one of them. And it's typically a change in cognitive function, a physical change, uh, muscle weakness. Uh, this can range everything from a, a full neuromuscular dysfunction to just weakness and difficulties in breathing uh, or exercise. And finally, psychological mood changes and function. So all three of these are components of the post-ICU syndrome that we've seen in patients. Now, can patients show these signs as an inpatient, outpatient? Because, you know, from what you described, I think that there are disease states as an inpatient that may mimic some of those same symptoms. Exactly. I think that clearly there are different uh, admission factors into an ICU that might mimic some of these symptoms early on. I don't think that um, we would consider onset of these symptoms during an ICU stay for a patient as being indicative of the, the initiating event because oftentimes we're treating these patients with aggressive treatments that would alter their ability to participate cognitively or they may have psychological consequences as a result of what is happening to them in the unit. So while some of the initiating factors within their own experience can create memories and set them up for a long-term presentation of PICS, within the ICU itself, what our role is to do primarily monitor to prevent risk factors from causing them to have these events or minimize those risks. Now, once they leave the intensive care unit, if they do do a transition of care to a floor or an acute rehab, they very well may begin to see some of those symptoms, um, but those are also hard to discern until you're a little bit further out at about six weeks after discharge, six weeks to four to six weeks out to discharge um, would be when we would be thinking about this is actually laying the groundwork at this point to whether or not they are presenting with post-ICU syndrome. Now, that's the patient-specific issue. We've grown to realize that family members are going to be significantly affected as much as one in three or higher are also going to go through some changes as a result of the experience in the ICU with their loved one and the survival issues that are uh, a part of that. So family members should be a component of what we focus on when we see these patients because, indeed, onset of symptoms for post-ICU effects are recognized now as being a key factor in more than just the patient themselves. So when patients are and families are in the unit, it's important to recognize that we need to be sensitive that families and family members may show some of these signs of stress, depression, anxiety, some of these changes that are going to affect them. And the emphasis on, you know, patient and family-centered care, hopefully as we're implementing that, we will, you know, be able to, um, you know, monitor those family members and make sure that, you know, um, you know, comfort them and, and be able to look for those kinds of signs that you were just talking about. Now, how common is 
picks? You know, is this something whether, you know, we're aware of it or not or actively monitoring it that we're likely seeing kind of in ICUs across the country or even kind of based on what you said earlier, even across the world? Uh, I think that that data is still coming. But from what we do know, that estimates range um, overall at 50% or higher likelihood of developing one or more of the components of PICS if you are a survivor of ICU care. That's independent of families. Right now, our families have been a newer group that people are beginning to recognize. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, some estimates as much as one in three will have some of these types of same symptoms or symptoms associated with survivors uh, following the ICU's uh, experience. Um, These symptoms can show up in an observational study that's been reported from 2016. uh, 64% of patients at three months had some symptoms of the post-ICU syndrome. Now, that may be cognitive, that could be psychiatric, that could be the physical effects, or it may be a combination. And at least uh, over 50% of those were still showing at least one of those symptoms at 12 months. So that's a lot. And it's actually becoming recognized by some as what would consider a public health issue. I would agree with that when you're saying that you know, close to 50%, if not more, are having these symptoms. That's, that's absolutely a, a, a real problem, something that's, you know, I'm glad that is finally getting the attention that it, that it deserves. So you kind of touched on um, some risk factors. So what are risk factors for patients kind of developing PICS? Are they, you know, exclusively, you know, prior to admission diagnoses or past medical history? Or, you know, do patients develop these risk factors while they're hospitalized in the ICU? Well, that's a really good question. Um, I think that one of the things we're learning, of course, we, we all recognize that patients who are admitted to our ICUs with pre-existing cognitive, psychiatric, physical disorders, or chronic diseases seem to really struggle in terms of recovery and responses in general. And we're finding a similar pattern for risk of post-ICU syndrome. So given your prior medical history of any of these three key factors, be weakness from cognitive, physical, or psychiatric types of illnesses that predispose you, that very well may increase your risk, independent of the other factors that come in. We also know that patients who are older, those who are uh, struggling with uh, substance abuse or alcoholism, if they have a prior history of stroke, um, or if they are what we consider frail from uh, just overall general weakness, Uh, Those things do increase the risk of cognitive impairments post-ICU. It seems that this does also happen a little bit more frequently with women, uh, with those who are also younger than 50. Uh, Educational level may impact the risk of PICS and any kind of pre-existing disability. Uh, any of these three, these kinds of factors can play into uh, risk. So we, these are not factors we can change, obviously. So what we have to focus on is what can we do in the unit to try to minimize or ad- adjudicate these risks that we introduce. And we do know that 
there are specific ICU-related risk factors, and those include prolonged mechanical ventilation, delirium, duration uh, seems to be very important, so trying to recognize and manage this appropriately. Uh, patients with sepsis and uh, who and ARDS, of course, these kinds of patients end up having aggressive interventional treatments. You've had two podcasts prior to this discussing ARDS, ECMO, other types of aggressive interventions. As we all recognize in the unit, we are doing things to try to save lives. Uh, however, these specific patients uh, do end up having additional risks of PICs and we need to be aware of that. Renal replacement therapies, any of these aggressive interventional things can be important. We have to monitor how we use our drugs in the unit for sedation and analgesia. And another one that is interesting has to do with bed rest and immobility. Of course, we know they're all hooked up to all these devices and trying to figure out how do we free them up, how do we get some mobility, passive range of motion, um, what are things we can do to keep the uh, patient mobile at some level to try to address any type of oncoming physical weakness and try to ablate that to the best of our ability. And recently, there's been some questions about what the role of steroids uh, may be in some of the uh, risks of setting people up for some of the post-ICU syndromes we see. This is argument like probably 8,000 for early mobility in these ICU patients. You're, you, you hit the nail on the head. Now, you were saying that the patients, you know, experience and are diagnosed with PICS as an outpatient. And so, you know, how long can they, can patients experience these symptoms after ICU discharge? And, and how does, how does PICS affect their recovery from the ICU? Again, this is a this is a good question, and it's sort of early for us in the U.S. even uh, to fully define it for the long period. We do know that patients can experience this for at least up to a year following uh, their ICU experience, and it's likely that that may be longer for some of them, depending on the uh, degree of impact and some of the comorbidities that were pre-existing. Um, it does affect their recovery early on as well as later because of the impact that it can have on their sleep. There are often recall nightmares, anxiety, depression. They have ongoing weakness. They may have, they may struggle with breathing disorders and recovery from aggressive interventions with trachs and being intubated, things such as this. Um, they can have mood changes and then that of course begins to impact their family dynamics. Uh, what their family is experiencing, what they see uh, from their uh, loved one that three months ago or one month ago, really none of these behaviors were there. Um, oftentimes they struggle to get back to their jobs that they held before they had the ICU admission, and they can have changes in their ability to function at an executive level or even pay attention, concentrate, have short-term memory and memory issues. So all of these things really affect their ability to uh, get back to life as they knew it. There is a new normal that we try to help them understand and work through and ideally get back to baseline, uh, if that's at all possible, through some of the interventions we can do. One of the things I think it's 
really important as pharmacists on the other side, you know, we're ICU pharmacists and we may forget about uh, the communication with our partners in the community and in the ambulatory settings that these uh, patients show up in. But the fact that they have these experiences and cognitive changes may really impact their ability to comply with medicines, to understand medicines, and to really uh, even whether they should be taking some of the medicines they had before this, any of this ever happened. So we have to be vigilant in really understanding how our patients are doing on the outpatient side as well once we uh, have a patient who has moved from the unit onto trying to start their life back as normal again. It's just so heartbreaking because this is, you know, they can experience those for up to a year or or longer. And this is after, you know, probably a prolonged, not only ICU, but hospital stay on top of that. And then you have, you know, probably the, you know, the medical bills and things coming in. So it can really, it can really add up there and um, Mm -hmm. affect those patients in in a negative way is what it sounds like. Now, what would, is there any role for kind of peer support? And when I say peer support, I guess I'm thinking, you know, for, you know, reaching out in the community or having support groups or online chat rooms in terms of recovery from critical illness. Cause I, I ask that because I, I have a feeling that if you are a, if you have, you know, you're an ICU kind of survivor, you're recovering from this critical illness that, you know, talking to other patients or families who are going through some of the same things may be comforting. Yes, I think that that is a very important point. Um, they, members of families as well as the patients themselves can benefit from online support communities and chat rooms. Uh, so there are Facebook groups and there are Advocacy opportunities, one of the things that has happened with some of our patients here at Kentucky has been the uh, opportunity for them to actually become advocates to help other patients. As they have recovered, they want to go back and visit and help people while they're in the ICU or go in and talk with families to help them prepare. I think that um, community and support groups and these types of activities are just critical because otherwise people feel isolated and confused. I also think that um, these resources are useful in helping other healthcare providers understand what is happening to the patient. I don't know that everyone is fully engaged with understanding all these changes that can happen to patients. And as a matter of fact, that was a recent finding in um, a paper in intensive care medicine where they talked about even our own clinicians don't understand all the time patient experiences and the impact of these things and how the more we can learn from our patients about what is happening in their life and help each other understand this, we can begin to tackle this problem and improve the morale and really help all of us um, better achieve the outcomes we'd like to see for these folks. Now, you kind of touched on this briefly earlier, but let's let's dig in a little bit, you know, and as an inpatient, you know, are there things that we could do as part of the ICU multidisciplinary team, whether, you know, whomever the, your role may be, that can really help to prevent the development of PICs in these high-risk patients? You know, that's been one of the most 
promising things that has come from some of these early definitions and the stakeholder meeting that was set up, and that is this identification of the A, B, C, D, E, and now F bundle. And this is an interprofessional effort where it is encouraged that every patient in the unit is assessed for awakening and breathing trials, having coordinated communication and care across team members, monitoring and managing delirium, early ambulation in the ICU if that's possible, and when it isn't possible, still raising it so that it continues to be on the forefront of what we're thinking about doing as soon as it is possible. And now that the F has been added to this bundle, we are trying to remind each other that engagement and partnership with those families is a critical component to help people prepare and perhaps avoid the development of post-ICU syndromes in these patients. And this has been a very effective tool. Uh, This is one of the most promising things that has happened on the inpatient side that does have some data to show that it is beginning, it can impact and make a difference. I know another thing that in the literature I'm, I'm seeing published more and more is the use of ICU diaries to be able to kind of write down. Is that, from your experience, is that something that's that's been helpful or that you've that, that patients have, you know, turned to afterwards and it's been a real source of comfort? It's very interesting. Um, an experience that we have at our clinic, um, we have a husband who has who did this daily throughout the day when his wife was sick and he brings the diary and has shared that with our team. And honestly, I don't know that his wife has looked at it as much as it has helped him in the healing process and it gave him a sense of purpose and it's been extremely informative to us as well. She talks about that she does intend to look at it, but at some point, she's just not ready yet. However, it does help him because he goes back and he sees some of these changes. Uh, and he can remember some of the things that happened and it empowers him to answer some of her questions. So I do think that these diaries can be very helpful. I don't know that we have a lot of strong data on their impact. I know some studies have had mixed results. I don't think we have any information to uh, discourage their use. I know they've been for use in Scandinavia since the 90s. Um, I do think that they're very helpful in uh, patients or their family members being able to answer questions that may happen at home about why am I having these nightmares or I had a bad dream and it was this and I can't understand where this came from. So I think that uh, data does suggest this may help with some of the post-traumatic stress symptoms that they may encounter either family or uh, patients. So I think that's a good tool to use. Um, I don't know that it's required, but I do think it's a helpful thing given an empowerment tool for the family members as well to help the patient with. And the important thing is it doesn't sound like it's harmful and it may help. So, so when, when you can, it sounds like a, a good um, strategy now. Yeah. My, yeah. From what I've seen with the patients we see, uh, those who use it, it's been very helpful to them. You mentioned the ABCDEF bundle, and I want to focus on the F portion, which is really kind of the patient and family-centered 
care. So what are what are things that we can do as an inpatient to encourage some of that family-centered care to, to help get those families involved and try to prevent, you know, the, you know, PICS-F or the, you know, uh, the family members experiencing PICS after the ICU? Well, one of the things I think is just, again, every day when we see them uh, going back after rounds and touching base with families and just sort of making a connection between the pharmacy and the the pharmacist and the family member. I think that we're a very easy connection person. Uh, they we, we aren't talking complicated topics necessarily with them and they know pharmacists and they recognize that we can be someone who could talk with them and just sort of helping them uh connect with an individual on the team. I think the other thing is um, helping them understand and educate them about what may be coming, uh, new normals, answer their questions candidly. Other members of the team, as well as pharmacists, who uh, can help support the family by encouraging them to have some positive activities they can actually do that will impact the patient outcome. So, television, for example, if that's being left on, even if it's on the floor once they're out of the unit, sometimes leaving the TV on at night is an overstimulus that causes problems for patients with nightmares. Keeping a regular daytime, nighttime schedule so that the patient kind of gets a little feeling for what is day, what is night. If a patient wears glasses, making sure they have them. All these things are things we partner with the nurses and the whole team to accomplish the type of music they enjoy, family pictures being around, if those are able to be there, uh, just helping to orient the patient so that they feel a part of the family they came from and knowing that that family's there. And I think that also makes the family feel like they're actually contributing to the recovery of the patient. And we should encourage that. And all things considered, those don't sound like, you know, extremely difficult tasks or things that would really disrupt a, a normal work day. Some of those things that you said, you know, really easy things that can make huge benefits down the road. I think so. So a lot of us, you know, we're both pharmacists. A lot of us listening are pharmacists. So I think people may be asking, what about the meds? So are there any specific medications that can help treat or prevent PICS or is is this a situation where we really focus on trying to prevent and avoid you know medication associated maybe adverse effects um, to to prevent some of those complications that can happen down the road yeah that's a great question um, I think for now the data is continuing to be debated on what we need to think about in terms of drugs and their contribution to the onset or risks of PICS. I mentioned earlier the issue of delirium and managing delirium, and so sedatives and analgesics, antipsychotics, uh, things such as this that we utilize. We have to keep our uh, balance in terms of making sure we have direct treatment uh, goals and duration of treatment goals. Uh, we don't want to undertreat because if we undertreat, then we're very likely to precipitate uh, delirium or uh, anxiety in a patient. But at the same time, we need to have 
these dosing endpoints to think about when do we take a trial of moving them off of this drug or decreasing this dose. So antipsychotics uh, are commonly utilized. Um, there are some uh, interesting studies talking about comparisons between these different products. Uh, the most important thing right now is just depending on which product you use. So far, we haven't seen a big difference in duration of delirium with these products. Uh, side effects may be different, so we have to be aware of that. Uh, neuromuscular blockers are often on board with patients, again, uh, because of the aggressive interventions that may be in place. So obviously, uh, making sure patients are sedated adequately and we're managing pain appropriately. Nutrition and glucose control, as well as any steroid use, become important uh, for us to monitor. As far as treating PICs, uh, that is, again, a symptomatic uh, intervention after they recover or once we see them in the outpatient setting. We do monitor for any anticholinergic burdens. Uh, if we have an, a large number of drugs with anticholinergic side effects that may impact cognitive function or exacerbate breathing challenges because of uh, dryness and other things such as that with their lungs and coughing or certain symptoms, we have to monitor for those in that setting as well. So it sounds like a lot of that is really just focused on high quality kind of critical care management in in a sense. Am I am I did I interpret a lot of that right? Yes, that's exactly right. Uh, I, that would be the take home message, I think, and I think similarly. In the outpatient setting, it's the same thing. It's comprehensive medication management and thinking very clearly about optimizing and streamlining medications and treatment endpoints and monitoring tools that we're going to use and also continuing to listen to the patients about whether these medications are useful and helping and if they have no, are no longer helping, thinking through what might be the next step. So, in your opinion, how, how do patients or their families know when they should try to seek help after they leave the hospital for symptoms of PICS or, or something similar to that? Well, this is an interesting dilemma because oftentimes patients are, if we haven't educated families and we haven't educated patients about the possibility of a post-ICU syndrome and what that might manifest as, they often are at home and they don't recognize what's happening to them. They may even go to their primary care provider who may not recognize what has happened. So some programs have actually talked about implementing a post-discharge phone call to check on these patients from an ICU provider, someone who calls and says, you know, finds out how they're doing, some type of nurse uh, or uh, licensed clinical social worker checking up on the patient. The other thing is um, helping patients and families understand that if there are new symptoms that show up or if they're continuing to be confused and have problems sleeping, they're having nightmares, mood changes, they're struggling to do activities of daily living. They should seek help. Um, similarly, family members need to understand that if they begin to have problems as a result of either what the patient is experiencing or they're actually experiencing post-traumatic stress of their own, 
talking with their care provider, their primary care provider, would be an important first step. Um, but this is where I think the collaborative ICU recovery clinic can be so important for them because that's what we're there for. And I think between that and even looking online, there are a lot of useful um patient education tools that are accessible that would define what a post-ICU syndrome looks like. However, I'm, if you don't expect or know about this syndrome as a family member or as a patient, it's going to be hard to know what is happening to you or who to call. And that's a reason why ICU recovery clinics may be a good first point. And that's what uh, we do here at Kentucky and at several throughout the country where people are trying to help uh, patients and their families prepare for what to expect next. And that's a, a perfect lead in because, you know, you currently, your current practice site is in the ICU recovery clinic, you know, associated with the University of Kentucky. Now, when patients are discharged from the hospital, are they automatically referred to the clinic or what is the process for, for being seen in your specific ICU recovery clinic? So at Kentucky, we actually screen patients while they're in the uh, ICU and we look for the risk factors and we do meet with the patient and fam or patient or family uh, during their stay to see if they're interested in scheduling a follow-up visit with our clinic. Um, now, we also accept referrals from other teams, but we actually look at specific criteria about which patients we would talk with or families we would talk with. And patients who have required mechanical ventilation for more than 48 hours, those who have a new trach, uh, any patient who's undergone uh, presser therapy for more than 72 hours because of shock sim syndromes, or has a new onset of organ failure that continues until discharge. So they had to have RRT, they had to have a PEG placement, new onset of low ejection fractions or DVT, PE. Uh, those who have ICU acquired weakness, if they've had a diagnostic uh, criteria that is met for delirium, and certainly if they have ARDS or ECMO, any of that type of risk is going to be a family or patient we will follow while they're in the unit and once able to make connections there, let them know about post-ICU syndrome and that we are there for them. We have an ICU recovery email. We have a pamphlet we provide them. We have cards we give them and phone numbers for contact. And we routinely, if they agree, we will put the schedule for them to see us on their discharge information when they leave. Wow. I say wow because if you're in a high acuity ICU, from what you just laid out, that is a large number of patients that that you're yeah. that are getting looked at and potentially being referred. Is that is there a high kind of volume of of patients coming into your clinic? Well, I think that um, it is increasing. Yes. Um, the thing that's difficult in the clinic is that these patients, when they come in, they are seen by a lot of people. There are a lot of people on the team that manage them. So the clinic visits themselves are pretty long. 
uh, for some of these patients, particularly their first visit after the ICU. And that's a little unusual for clinics. Uh, it's not typical that you would have 40 minutes with a patient uh, or up to an hour with any given patient because they're seen by so many different professionals. Our numbers are increasing. Um, of course, it does depend on whether the patient can even get back to the University of Kentucky. This is a long, ongoing problem throughout the country because many of these ICU recovery clinics are not close to the family. So telemedicine and other things may have to become a part of what we do um, as trying to reach out to at least connect with people and then begin to get them connected with local community sources. But yes, it is a large number of patients, and as I say, it's even growing. We've been contacted now by trauma as well as neurosurgery to start thinking about what do we need to do with our patients. <laughs> so it, it is an increasing number, and people are becoming more aware. And now when, when patients are seen, and you, you mentioned that you have a the, the ICU recovery clinic team is large, so who... What members, you know, who kind of comprises that team and what issues or problems do you really focus on in these, you know, clinic visits? Yes. Yeah, so at Kentucky, we, we're really fortunate. Uh, we have two ICU physicians who rotate uh, within the clinic on a regular basis. We have a dedicated doc, DNP who uh, is with us every week. We have a dedicated physical therapist and a dedicated licensed clinical social worker and then a pharmacist. And we see the patients. We meet every week. And this may end up having to move to two days a week as uh, numbers continue to increase. Uh, pretty much the meetings start with a pharmacy review of medication issues and what's happening with the family and different uh, background to give the patient a comfort level and just get them relaxed um, and then identifying any acute issues. Once I leave the room, I come back and I share what is happening with the patient and what is going on with their family. And from there, either the social worker or the nurse or the physical therapist will move in next and we just sort of cycle through depending on the issues uh, that need to be addressed. And um, the social worker yesterday, for example, in clinic, we were trying to find uh, places where patients could begin to participate in some uh, exercise-related programs and not be exposed to large gyms because a lot of people have trouble getting back into any type of um, environment where there are a lot of people. So we were contacting rehab exercise programs, pool programs, and our clinical social worker was working with those patients to try to get those set up locally for them based on the patient request. That was a very positive outcome. Of course, these were some of our more long-term people, and they're a little further out from their ICU stay. Those are the kinds of things we do, coordinate care across those visits and help the providers all have a common place and the patients have a common place, and we serve as that resource. And address issues that I think all of all of the listeners, right? You're talking about, you know, exercise and going to the gym. Those are things that I think we may take for granted. But, you know, those little things, I'm sure if that was a six, if you were able to find something, I'm sure that just makes patients grateful. Things that, you know, I, when, when I was thinking of what you, the, the role and the things that you all did in the clinic, that would have never entered my mind. So 
you all are doing really fantastic, fantastic work there. Well, thank you. Now you it's, it's a, that's why I mean individual care. They each have it different needs, so that's what we're there to do. Now, you mentioned this a little bit earlier that, that these ICU recovery clinics, although they are, the number is growing, if we think about them in relation to critical care units and hospitals, they are still extremely rare across the country. So for those of us who may not be in, in great areas, you know, the other ones that come to mind, you know, you mentioned Joanna Stallings, you know, and her incredible work in um, Nashville, Tennessee with Vanderbilt and um, in Indianapolis, you know, Eskenazi Health, those are in, with you all in Absolutely. University of Kentucky. I think of those as, you know, three of the really important ones. But if we're in locations where we may not be as fortunate to have these types of clinics, you know, how can we help them? You know, what resources can we give if we don't have the luxury of these clinics to refer patients to? That's a good question, and we even uh, use these same resources for folks uh, here. Uh, one of the main things that we start with is the Society of Critical Care Medicine Patient and Family Portal. Uh, we, during their clinic visit, I will take them uh, to that actual website, uh, the sccm.org, My ICU Care Home, and this this actual uh, portal will help them access PIC support groups on Facebook. There's a pamphlet that's available. There's a guide to understanding post-ICU syndrome. There's glossary of terms. So if, you know, patients may have heard terms they don't know, this is something they can access when they are not with us in clinic. Um, the uh, recent uh, launch of a patient communicator app is something that uh, is new and is just beginning to be utilized uh, for patients in the ICU survivor setting. And that is an uh, application that allows them to know and document symptoms, keep track of their medications and their responses. So some of these things could perhaps be useful to help even with the primary care provider communication between the patient and that particular provider so that they begin to understand what the patient is trying to communicate. And it also could possibly help facilitate referrals to a specific clinic if needed. I know that uh, in Vanderbilt, they talk about they see patients throughout the entire state and other referrals just because of their location. Uh, and of course, we see people the same way. Our, our clinic is nowhere near as large as that one. And I know Eskenazi does a similar type of thing. But um, certainly getting patients empowered, I think returning some sense of control to the patient and the family so they understand what is happening is a very powerful recovery tool. And so this is something we routinely do with them is show them this particular area, helps them see it's a national issue, helps them see that others are dealing with this, and then empowers them to have information that they can then use to communicate more effectively. And I think that that's a really powerful recovery tool as well. So do you think we do a good enough job kind of preparing patients and their families for what challenges, you know, may lie ahead after they leave the ICU? And I ask you this question because I think you have a very unique perspective of seeing patients on the outpatient side, whereas like I can speak for myself and probably a lot of others where, you know, other than the patients who come back into the ICU a few months and are so happy, that's really, you know, the majority of the interactions. And I know that is not a 
true kind of story of how most of them are living afterwards. Yeah. Um, I do think we can do better either uh, inpatient and outpatient. I don't think we're really doing the best job of preparing patients and families, but I do think to some extent that's because we're still learning exactly what to expect um, and how these things may manifest. The other problem we have on the inpatient side is the shock value of patients and families trying to just take in the magnitude of everything that is actually happening day to day and survival. So it's really hard to try to introduce anything beyond that uh, until the time is right. And so it's very helpful for us to communicate and try to provide some tools that when they're ready to be able to look at those, they can. But timing is very important. And we have to listen. We have to work with the nurses and the other inpatient teams to try to think about the best time for having those conversations. And we definitely need to listen carefully with that patient and family as they talk about their concerns. And I think our licensed clinical social workers, our case managers are key parts of the team that can help guide us as well in how to best communicate and help the family prepare for this. Um, that, that to me is uh, really where we need to go in terms of some of the discharge planning from the unit and from the hospital. And I do think that concrete pieces of information they can take with them and look at once they're home is very helpful as well. I think one of the recurring themes throughout, you know, our discussion is that, you know, we're still learning a lot of these things and we're still learning about PICS. So as we, as we move forward and, and hopefully gain in our kind of knowledge and understanding, what are things that you think we can do down the road to really help us um, improve our, our care and try to prevent or, or better manage PICS? Well, I do think that um, partnering with our outpatient providers is key. I do think transitions of care has been a buzzword for a while within pharmacy circles and all healthcare circles, but I don't know that we've fully appreciated the significance of this and comprehensive medication management as it relates to particularly those who have survived an ICU stay. Often the intensive care environment, we are in high demand. We are saving lives. We are busy. We are trying to take care of that patient in front of us. And we haven't really thought about how am I going to schedule into my day uh, communicating or helping uh, make some of these care transitions happen or be available for those types of things. So I think systems to begin improving communication uh, across domains is going to be an important part of that. I also think that uh, the more we can do systematic evaluations of methods and introduction of new communication tools so we can understand what families are experiencing and better define what is happening to them uh, by partnerships with the outpatient world will help us on the inpatient side. And I don't, this is not uh, something new that I'm coming up with. Others have described similar needs. There have been studies to try to look at the barriers and obstacles to the inpatient and outpatient side. And uh, there's recently been a pilot study to try to examine this. And that's a very good first start, um, just beginning to get 
the terminology defined and the questions need to be defined so we can look at those and answer those. But in the short term, I think we need to just try to um, work together and empower the patients, talk with them, and then work with our outpatient colleagues to the best we can, make sure that we've got concrete contact information and discharge information about their medications and other things that others can call back and talk to the pharmacist who is involved um, if access to electronic medical records is not available to those outpatient providers. So they have no way to know what actually happened to the patient there. Now, all of this is so, so important. I mean, you have, you've really given us tons of, of incredible information here, but if there was a, a few things that you wanted to reemphasize for us that, that you believe are kind of some of the most important points, what would those be? Wow. Um, I think um, as providers, we really do need to be vigilant in thinking about the impact of ICU care on our patients and families. And I think that all of us are about that. And I, but I, as I'll tell my own story, my biggest lessons, lessons through this have been the recognition that saving a life by helping them go home is just step one. And until I became more aware of PICS and some of the long-term impacts of these things, I was never aware that I had only taken the first step. So I think we have to understand that while they're in the unit, we've got to do the very best we can. As you said, optimizing ideal critical care, uh, pharmacotherapy, working with our team on A, B, C, D, E, F bundles and making sure those are in place. But I think that we do have to continue on the journey at some level. Every member of that family is going to be affected by this ICU experience. And PICS will impact the quality of life for the family and the patient for a while to come and maybe for a very long time to come, depending on the recovery and of each, not only of the original initiating event, but also the subsequent fallout from that event. So, as partners with those who are on the outpatient side, we can help build some of those comprehensive support systems so we can get the best treatment, we can do research, we can do the kinds of things we do as pharmacists to really try to make sure that the medications are optimized, but also that the medications are optimized so they can participate fully in their physical therapy rehab, their pain is managed, their chronic conditions are managed, and our pharmacy partners in the community and ambulatory settings have access to us if they have questions about some of the things they are beginning to see so that we can all work together for these patients and their families. Those are absolutely wise words. Jimmy, I'm so glad that you were able to join me today. This was even better than I could have imagined. You know, I've learned so much and I know, I know I'm not alone in that sentiment here. Now, if any of the listeners would like to get in touch with you, kind of what's the best avenue to do that? Are you on social media at all? I am on social media, but I'm not really good with social media. <laughs> I'm learning. So I certainly would uh, do my best to respond. I have, I am on Twitter and I am on Facebook. Um, gosh, I'm not even sure if I know my Twitter handle. That's how engaged I am. I'm following and learning. Also, email. 
is an, I, I definitely respond to the old email way, and I can be reached at the University of Kentucky, J-H-A-T-T-1, at UKY.edu. And um, perhaps over the next six months, my Twitter expertise is going to improve. So I'm certainly willing to give it a try if I get questions that way. And uh, I'm still learning, I confess, on that particular avenue of communication. We're all still learning. Jimmy, thanks again. I, this, was, this was fantastic. Well, I sincerely appreciate the opportunity that you've given me to share some of this. It's been a fascinating journey for me in learning these things. And I'm, I'm really excited about where the care for these patients is going to be and moving forward. And I think pharmacy is just a pivotal part of that. And we have some excellent young folks as well as those who are more uh, further down the line in their career who are all invested in trying to help bring pharmacy to the forefront in helping these people get better and their families. It was absolutely my pleasure. So another huge thanks to Jimmy Hatton Kolpik for taking the time to join us today. And then of course, as always, want to give a massive thank you to you, the listeners, because obviously this podcast doesn't exist without you. So please you know, send me feedback, whether it's positive or negative, as well as any guest or topic ideas uh, via Twitter or Instagram at pharmacy to dose. That's T-O to dose um, or via email as well. Pharmacy to dose at gmail.com. And then on our website, pharmacytodose.com, you'll find show, show notes that includes background reading, um, articles referenced in this discussion, and, and much, much more. Um, love to hear from each and every one of you. And until next time, I'm Nick Peters, and this is Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast.